Hello, listeners. This is the Eclipse Viewer, episode 53, Nikatsu Noir, part two. My name is David Blakesley. I'm the guy who makes jokes and gives orders. And here with me are two henchmen to carry out our latest plot of wrapping up our conversation about Nikatsu Noir, the Eclipse Series 17. Uh, Pablo Knota, welcome back. Great to be here. Hi. And Trevor Barrett, my usual right-hand sidekick here. What's up, Trevor? I've got your back, David. <laughs> Don't worry right. about a thing. <laughs> We're blood brothers. We're going down fighting. Not, not giving it up, right? Well, we, That's right. We, <laughs> we have worked hard to bring this episode to you. It's been a couple weeks of delays, but as you know, uh, even the most perfect uh, scheme sometimes goes awry, and you got to make adjustments and... Uh, come back and get it from a different angle and that's what we're going to do today uh if you haven't listened to part one yet i recommend that you just go ahead and you know search in your uh, podcast feed and, and listen to uh, where we started uh several weeks ago i guess it was now we uh, covered the first three films of this uh really great very popular and very crowd-pleasing eclipse series uh entry nikatsu noir where we talked about the early days of the uh the Nikatsu uh, movement into uh, youth-oriented uh, kind of gangster crime films. Uh, those are films from 1957, 58, 1960. Uh, I Am Waiting, Rusty Knife, Take Aim at the Police Fan. Uh, two of those films starred uh, Ujiro Ishihara. We talked quite a bit about him and his career and kind of what he represented to uh, Japanese cinema at that time. And today we're going to shift our focus by jumping forward a few years uh, to 1964 and 1967, respectively. Uh, two films starring the one and only Joe Shishido. And we talked a little bit about Joe in that first episode because he did make one kind of very brief uh, appearance. It wasn't quite a cameo because at the time nobody really knew who he was. But uh, he was uh, uh, he, he kind of gave a, a hint of things to come as he kind of met kind of a grisly fate. Uh, after making a brief appearance toward the beginning of, of one of those films. Um, but, yeah, so let's just talk a little bit about Joe Shishido. We're going to just jump right into it here. Uh, Pablo, would you do us the honors of kind of giving us a little overview of the career of Joe Shishido? Yes, uh, very. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, well, Joe, Joe Shishido was a contract actor for uh, Nikatsu, beginning, I believe, in uh, mid to late in the mid to late fifties. And well, while he was certainly cast in leading roles from the beginning, these leading roles were mostly of a romantic nature, which because. Uh, Joe Shishido basically had the problem of being very handsome, uh, which can be a problem if you want to get into the more gritty stuff in cinema, the more action-based uh, films. So, uh, what did he do in order to play the roles of tough action heroes? Well, he was pragmatic about it and underwent plastic surgery. and. Basically implanted uh, uh, silicone into his cheekbones to toughen them up, and which was supposed to give him a more tough appearance. Well, his little ploy worked, and he 
became a minor action stars uh, beginning in the 1950s. Uh, sorry, not beginning in the 1960s. After uh, Yuchiro Ishihara, who was then the biggest star of Nikatsu, sadly was hurt in a skiing, skiing accident. He broke his leg and had to go uh, to hospital for several months. Well, and while he, while uh, Ishihara basically healed his wounds, uh, Yuchihiro and Shishido was cast to fill in for him and start in several relatively gritty action films. Among them, uh, the two films we are about to discuss now, A Cruel Gun Story and A Call to My Passport. All right. Well, that's, that's great. So, so Shishido, because kind of kind of a bench player who got a starting job because of an injury to the to the leading man. That's very fascinating. I, I didn't quite pick up on that as in some of my reading up on on Shishido, but he definitely did make an impact uh, on the industry. And uh, and we talked a little bit about Yujiro as he kind of became a little bit more of a a mainstream kind of actor. I mean, he, he always liked to play the tough guy. You know, he always wanted to have a little bit of that swagger. But Shishido seems to have kind of ramped it up into uh, to another level, at least in, in my view and perhaps in the view of others who've kind of tracked. Uh, Shishido's probably a little bit more famous, maybe a little bit more beloved uh, by Western fans of Japanese film. Um is it because of his acting abilities? You know, he's certainly capable and competent. Uh, I think it's just more of an image. It's it's a it's a projection of fatalistic, tough guy who's who's not just you know uh, had a little bit of a you know, trouble in his past like the Ujiro characters tend to, but he's a guy who's really kind of been beaten down and hard pressed by life. So, Trevor, you know, give me a little bit of your impression about this Joe Shishido guy. Have, have you had a chance to see many of his films at all, or, or what kind of an impression did he leave on you? No, these were these were kind of the first. As I mentioned in the last episode, I I, I kind of had a vague idea of who he was because of his cheeks, <clears throat> but I had never seen um, any of the Seijun Suzuki films that are in the collection. And so this was all pretty new to me. And, you know, the first the first few frames, I was like, well, that looks ridiculous. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I, you talk I about can't. the enhancements there, the, the cheekbones. Yes, right? the, yeah. the cheekbones looked looked just, you know, they, they stood out immediately as something, you know, fake and and strange. But it didn't stay that way for very long at all. Um, they... I don't know what it was. I think you're you hit it on the head when you talked about his stoicism <clears throat> and um, and and the like because they they kind of enhance that mood really nicely. It never it never looks easy for him to smile. It starts when you start to get to know his characters as kind of tough guys who have had quite a bit of a past. It just it really looks like he's been battered. Um, it looks like he's, you know, always kind of um, looking with a bit of a squint to see things more clearly. Um, yeah, pretty soon I was a big fan of those enhancements. I wouldn't recommend it to just anybody. Um, that's not <laughs> no. what I mean. I, I think that they should probably stay in this particular part of cinematic history. Um, but yeah, I, I thought they, these films were were a lot of fun. 
And I think a lot of the mood, you know, comes from those cheekbones and the way it just, uh, the way he uses them to, to kind of scowl down at people and, and just take things as they come. Um, yeah, I, I was a big fan. I'm, I'm very excited to see the other films. I, I haven't had a chance to do that yet, despite these delays. It, <clears throat> it didn't give me uh, the time that I wanted for, for that. But I'm excited to because I'm curious how they work in other types of films, um, <clears throat> in other types of roles. But yeah, I, I, I'm definitely a fan of, of Joe and... Uh, you know, uh, this is just anecdotal and just one sample, um, but he stands out to me more than Yujiro Ishihara already. And I've only seen two of his movies. There's just there's just something about it. Um, I, I like the movies that we've watched with Yujiro Ishihara, um, but yeah, this is this is more my kind of thing, and Joe is more more my kind of um, of image and action hero. Perhaps because in contrast to Yuchiro Ishihara, uh, Joe Shido always, his coolness always somewhat borders on self-parody because of the bizarreness of his cheekbones, but also because he has, well, not in, this, in these films, uh, in these films he's more straight-faced than usual, but for example in many Suzuki films he always imbues his characters with a sense of self of irony and which made him a brilliant fit for the films who, who fraught by Suzuki uh, by the way who passed of course away uh, a week ago ago or so so rest in pieces it's rather sad but uh, anyway Shishido is uh, somewhat resembles, uh, in my opinion, someone like uh, John Paul Belmondo, uh, in its basically in its uh, making fun of uh, of machoism and male, you know, chauvinism, but also in the same sense being very much portraying these uh, tough, cool characters. Uh, so. I believe that's what makes him really different from Ishihara, and that what that's what uh, is what uh, intrigues me intrigues me about Chishido and his unique kind of you know star presence. Yeah, definitely. Now, now, you know, I don't want to go on too long about these cheekbones, but I'm just kind of wondering well, where did this idea even come from? I mean. Uh, you know, I know there's plastic surgery to sometimes, you know, you know, tighten up the wrinkles, reduce the size of the nose, uh, you know, tuck away the bags under the eyes or, or things of that sort. But I've never heard of anybody else who's done this level of an of, of a surgical uh, alteration, especially early on. I mean, you know, body modification was not really a, a, a term or a fad or a thing uh, back in the late 50s, early 60s. So, uh, Pablo, are you aware of any other uh, Japanese stars of this era or of any era who who undertook such a procedure? Or was this just some brilliant uh, you know, flash of insight from Shishido that said, you know, I could do this and it'll just take my career off in a totally different direction. Well, I'm sure there was uh, facelifting and, well, beauty enhancement sure. from okay. the very beginning. But, yeah. of course, uh, nobody 
I know of, what it's, uh, well, <laughs> basically, mutilate himself, his good looks, in such a way as Shishido did. But of yeah. course, he just wanted, he didn't want to be handsome, he wanted to do action, and, well, it worked, so nothing wrong with that, in my opinion. No, no, I, and I think it must have been something that, and it, and it came from his inside, like his his inner person, his self concept of of who he is or who he wanted to be, as far as his artistic expression was. I want to be a beat him up action guy. I want to be a a, a, a marksman, an assassin, you know, <laughs> a, a, not not a suave romantic ladies man. Which you know, I'm sure there was a market in Japanese film. There always is for romance and light comedy and things of that sort, but. You know, at least the impression we get from this point in history, looking back, is that you know the the tough guys. That's that's where the action was, and, and he was with Nikatsu. That was Nikatsu's bread and butter, and I guess he perceived that he had a unique angle, and I think he really did make a pretty strong impact. So, um, to maybe well, shift a little bit to these, well, go ahead. Who wants to jump in? Just a couple of quick things. Did did. Yeah. Did you guys also have the same um, reaction I did where the first look is baby face ridiculousness, but then it just starts to work? And then my second thing is, has he um, taken out the enhancements? Because I've seen recent pictures of him and he looks it looks like he has. I don't know if that's common knowledge or not, but just was curious about about those two things before we move. I, I can't move away from the cheekbones quite yet, David. <laughs> well, let's, just, let's just resolve these cheekbones once again. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, he has taken them off, I believe. I read an interview uh, a few years ago where he said that, well, in the 1980s, I believe, he took them out when he wanted to be recognized more as a character actor with more challenging roles when he was basically done with action and perhaps couldn't do it as well as in his uh, 20s and 30s during the 60s. So, yeah, I, sh- I believe he has. He has, yes. All right. Well, well interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's move on to the films themselves then, and I'm sure we'll 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 analyze Joe a little bit as his his characters are revealed here. Uh, but the first of them is Cruel Gun Story, and this is a film from 1964, which jumps ahead a few years, but it feels like there's almost been a mood shift in in the Nikatsu uh, universe there. Whereas you know, with with the Yujiro characters, they're younger men. Uh, who have already you know encountered some stumbles in life, but in Cruel Gun Story, uh, Joe Shishido, his character is is given a very specific age. He was you know even a birth date. You know they they kind of do this little uh, narrative introduction thing as uh, you know characters are talking to each other and revealing each other's history. And he was a, a man who uh, you know came of age as as Japan was getting into the you know, into the war years and. His family was abused and decimated by uh, you know, Chinese uh, in a conflict, military conflict situation, and so he's he's really kind of lost it all. Uh, he's done some prison time. In fact, in, in Cruel Gun Story, he's we we meet him as he's kind of being sprung out of prison uh, on a little bit of a favor slash technicality by a crime boss who wants to get him back in the racket and exploit his uh, well-known skills. Uh, for pulling off big jobs, and so you know the the this character uh, Togawa, I guess is his name. He's uh, he's really a man with with a pretty bitter past and and 
no discernible future, but he's he's got you know one shot perhaps at at uh, making something good happen. He's even got a sister that he's kind of lamenting uh, as she's be uh, she's been uh, disabled due to a car accident. So yeah, so there's th- these 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 stories of revenge and and um, putting your life back together after kind of a, a series of shattering losses. And uh, it does seem to me like this movie is is really speaking to men of a certain age, and, and and I wonder if that's where the appeal of Shishido's character comes from as well. Not just his looks or his tough guy, you know, swagger, his his sense of presence, but you know, uh, kind of relating to the post-war Japanese experience, uh, uh, a nation that's been humbled and 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 has had to go through a pretty. A rough process of reconstruction. Uh, there's some political angles here too, as they, you know, allusions to the uh, American occupation are kind of scattered around the film. So, what's a little of the background that that jumps out at you there, Pablo? Just to kind of give the, give us the context of this, uh, of this, you know, kind of classic uh, heist flick plot and uh, you know the setting and the atmosphere. But there's also a culture that it comes out of. Well, uh, I have to start a bit earlier. Uh, well, let's start when uh, Yujiro Ishihara broke his leg in 1961. This uh, effectively, of course, took him out for several months. And uh, Nikatsu back then employed uh, the so-called Diamond Line, which was basically yeah, a, let me just say, taking a star out for several months nowadays would not be that big a deal. But you miss a couple months of production in Nikatsu in this era. Oh <laughs> It's yeah. like you've almost retired, right? Oh yeah, Ishihara played in uh, about fifteen movies uh, every year, so <laughs> he was uh, very active. Everyone was very active and productive in this time. Uh, anyway, uh, the Diamond Line was. Yes. Uh, was something of a rooster for basically Nikatsu's young, promising uh, stars. Well, and to make matters even worse, another star of the Diamond Line, uh, Keichiro Akagi, uh, died actually in a go-kart accident above uh, things. And, a go-kart uh, accident. Yeah. I guess they can be pretty deadly when they flip over or something like that. Yeah. With 21, which makes him uh, a somewhat of a uh, Japanese James Dean, uh, in my opinion. Uh, well, and well, Nikatsu simply had to fill fill in new guys into the diamond line uh, in order to compensate for the lack of Ishihara and uh, Akagi. So, well, they cast uh, Joe Shishido, but Joe Shishido obviously wasn't very fitting for the characters that uh, Yujiro Ishihara played. Uh, thus, uh, they adapted a, a more gritty tone in uh, Joe Shishido's uh, films. Also, in order to uh, win over the young uh, student protesters who were much more political active and critical of uh, society and the establishment in particular than uh, they had been in the late 50s. And I have a, have a little theory why this film has this very downtrodden, uh, nihilistic uh, tone to it, as we will, I'm sure, explore. Uh, at the same time, another studio 
Toei was very successful with a so-called Sengoku Chidageki wife. Sengoku Chidageki means a cruel Chidageki. It was basically an attempt to cater to the students by giving them a very gritty, uh, very gritty exposés of the cruelties of Japanese uh, middle of the Japanese Middle Ages. So, and I believe that Nikatsu wanted to do the same. Thus, the film in its original form uh, is, uh, what's, what is this? Kenjo Sankuku Monogatari, I believe. Uh, thus, I also, I believe they wanted to emulate the success of uh, Tohei's uh, Sankuku Chidageki, uh, just to give you a little background on that. I appreciate that. I always love hearing this stuff. This is cool. <laughs> well, and what did what did you think about the tone in contrast to the films we watched? Well, yeah. Earlier? I mean, incredibly bleak, uh, pessimistic, nihilistic, I think is a word you used. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's, it's dark and <laughs> kind of like a, a good stout cup of coffee in the morning, espresso, double or <laughs> even triple. <laughs> uh, Trevor, what was your thoughts, uh, your just response to the overall tone of this film? A good coffee laced with cyanide, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. The, um, the tone of the first three felt a little bit more emotional and you know, heightened, like you might expect with some films about youth. It's not quite, you know, bleak things happened in those for sure. People's plans were were ruined and, and people's lives were, were destroyed. But the the emotional um, baggage behind it still had room, I, I think, for a little bit of hope, perhaps. Um, yeah, I think about uh, Yujiro walking off at the end of Rusty Knife, and there's the knife kind of in the foreground, and Mm-hmm. He's got the the coat, you know, draped over his shoulder, and the woman at his side. And it's like, yeah, he's been beat up, but you know, there's still a future there. Uh, he can yeah. put this behind him and move on. <laughs> you don't get the sense in either of these films. I mean, Joe Shishido, his characters keep well. No, he 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 dies in this one, but he he's he takes quite a pounding. And Colton is my passport. Yeah, I, and, yeah, he does. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just not going to end well. It's yeah. a gritty end for him. Yeah. And a painful one, I assume. Yeah, but 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 you're right. You know, these these films didn't really go for that kind of emotional drama, or or if it did, it didn't play it on the surface. I mean, obviously, Joe Shishido's character in *Cruel Gun Story* has that emotional, you know, desire for for something better, um, particularly for his sister. I mean, he he's gotten out of jail. He he you kind of get the sense that he would have liked to have gone straight. Um, but you know, he's, he's wrapped up in this scheme right from the get go. In fact, the only reason he's out of jail was because the boss, the, the mob boss got him out early so that he could turn around and help with this, um, this heist. And so he doesn't ever have that chance. And he, and he kind of keeps all of this buried a little bit beneath the surface. Well, maybe even a lot beneath the surface. You know that he cares about his sister. You know that he cares about his friend. Um, and you know he doesn't really trust anybody else that he's working with. But for the most part, his face is stone cold. Um, let's go get this done. It probably won't work out. <laughs> you know, you just get that sense that he knows how this is going to end. Um, 
Right. But the train is on the tracks. It's rolling down, and you just got to see this thing through to its inevitable conclusion. Yeah. I also was, uh, first of all, I really like this film. It's, in my opinion, perhaps the best in the box set. But uh, I was also somewhat shocked at how casually uh, people are killed in this film. So, or uh, how casually people kill. Uh, it's really a even sometimes just a viciousness. It's sometimes death is even somewhat exploited for comedic effect. For example, when this gangster gets shot and then falls into the gully <laughs> dead. Or uh, also, if you remember that scene, which some I found darkly humorous in some. Now, which scene are you thinking? Okay, like where the gangster. Gangs- Mm-hmm. Gangster gets shot and then falls into the gully. Is oh, that, oh yeah, the, yeah, the sewer. I guess might be a, the sewer, a, a yeah. American way, right? Down that little manhole cover, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like a Pratt fall, except man, this guy just got blown away. And and I think of the other one where uh, you know there's the car parked alongside of the dock and they're kind of waiting for the big showdown. And and uh, I hope I'm not getting a mix up. I, I, is this is that where they drive him off the side, or is that? Or no, that's that's Colt as my passport. Where they push the the car into the ocean there into the harbor. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh no 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 no. Ah yes. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, yeah, but 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 there is a callousness in in both of these films. In this one here, though, you're right. There's there's just kind of a you know uh, life is disposable, and if a person gets in your way, you know we're just going to have to rub them out and and keep the plot moving forward. Yeah, and it kind of goes with um, Shishido's face again, that just um, you move forward, you get this stuff done. Um, There are obvious connections to this film and Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, Um, you know, the... The, the racetrack, the even even the misdirection of the of the the security vehicle carrying the money, um, various things like that just call to mind some classic heist films, and I was trying to remember the tone of those kinds of films are usually a little bit fun, um, and I was trying to remember if they kill the police officers and the security guards in those in those kinds of films. I I don't remember, but it was shocking in this one. When they just kind of summarily execute the 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 officers that are on the motorcycles, and yeah, right, and, and then yeah, take, there's, there's no build up, there's no yeah. drama. It's just like boom, boom. Okay, yeah, they're exactly. out of the way. Exactly. Next. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I was trying to remember, and I haven't gone back to look, but I wanted to see. You know, obviously there were security officers in several of the heist movies we've, you know, that are in the the Criterion Collection, and. But I don't remember ever being quite that this shocked at um, at the just quick disposal of them. <laughs> so I'm I'm not sure if they even are killed or if they're just tied up or or what. But um, anyway, I, it's a good point, Pablo. Exactly. Yes. Uh, well, I remember. Oh, I've seen the killing about uh, what it was five years ago. So I don't remember exactly, but I remember the tone was more clinical but equally as depressing so i don't know the killing came earlier did it oh yeah it did yeah i'm i'm not sure uh how how much of an impact that film had in japan i mean stanley kubrick obviously went on to become a complete legend of of cinema i mean you know one of the all-time greats but i'm not sure his reputation was 
quite that high. I, I, I suppose probably in Japan in nineteen the early sixties, they would have been aware of his other you know films because he you know produced quite a number of other works since then that might have brought them back to uh, viewing the killing. But yeah, let's just talk a little. Yeah. Hmm. Exactly yeah. right. So and so yeah. So this this whole noir thing. I mean, there, there really are some uh, conventions. You know, we we see the, the you know the, the 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 whole sequence of you know kind of that 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 loner who's going to be dragged into one last big job, and then you're bringing the gang together, kind of meeting the characters and each of their little you know quirky past the the things that kind of give them their own distinct role. You've got the fighter. You've got the gambler. You've got the loudmouth who can't, you know, keep his you know, yap shut, uh, who gets dismissed from the gang. You got them gathered in their little seedy hideout on the, you know, industrial fringes of town. And then you've got the uh, the, the hatching of the plot, you know, and uh, they kind of give you a run through of how it's supposed to work. Uh, kind of a visualized uh, imagining of what's going to go down when, when they pull off the job. And of course <laughs> there's that one thing that goes wrong yeah. uh, when it comes time to actually execute and everything changes from there. Uh, but yeah, I, I know that, you know, you can go back to the, you know, the classic American noirs of the late 1940s, uh, the French noirs of the fifties, you know, early Melville and, uh, you know, Becker and other films of that sort, Rafifi, um, uh, uh Touche pas au Grisby, uh, Bob Le Flambeur, some of those uh, French noirs are, are pretty great. Uh, you know, you, you see the progression there. But, uh, yeah, Pablo, how much of the of those earlier noirs have you had a chance to see, and how do you see them as influences on what uh, what, what Nikatsu's doing in this one? Oh, many of them, but uh, almost no French ones, I have to admit. But many American ones, but I'm, um, mm-hmm. I'm very sure that, that, uh, Nikatsu was influenced by them. Of course, Nikatsu was all about American and French, uh, crime cinema, and all of their directors were influenced and, uh, enthusiastic about them. So, uh, well, the tone, of course, the tone, of course, is reminiscent of films like, say, uh, Oh my god. <laughs> like, like out of the past, for example. This is another film which I believe is quite reminiscent of Grogan's story in its fatalistic tone in it. You know that these people are desperate. They they do what they have to do, but they you probably know that it won't turn out well. So uh and Asphalt Jungle, another uh, recent oh, yeah, exactly. release that yeah. definitely fits into this this vein, and so and so. But you also see again the, the unique Japanese uh, angles here, uh, with with the allusions to their own past, and I, I do want to talk a little bit, a little bit about the the American uh, influence there in terms of uh, sort of the negative take on America's role in Japan with the abandoned air base, those those shots of the B fifty twos and bombers kind of zooming overhead every once in a while, even that opener. Uh, where we first see Joe Shishido, kind of the shot that Trevor referenced, where he's got his dark shades on, he's smoking, his his eyes are you know kind of you know, behind the sunglasses, but his face is kind of covered with barbed wire. I mean, it's just it's a very you know iconic image. Uh, I don't know if if Shishido himself was a already a pretty big draw, but it's it's kind of a nice showcase just for his persona to sort of start the film off. 
and he is the pivotal figure throughout the whole thing. He's the guy who's running the gang, calling the shots, <laughs> and making the jokes and giving orders, as he says, uh, at one point, uh, asserting his authority. And, uh, of course, he's also the guy who winds up with the loot at the end for all the good it does him. Well, <laughs> for all the good it does him, you say it. Uh, well, well, I believe the American presence gives this film a very sort of, it adds to the oppressive, uh, somewhat yeah, fatalistic feel of the film because you feel that these characters aren't really in control of themselves and of course they are not in control of their situation as the plot unfolds. And I believe the military presence that is shown there just adds to this yeah, to, the, to this feeling, uh, because Japan itself uh, is shown to be not quite under control of uh, herself. Yeah. So I right. Uh, uh, please. He, okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. Imamura is making his films. You know, pigs and battleships. Uh, Oshima. You know, in these early sixties is definitely tapping into some of that student resentment, that kind of political activism. Uh, that restlessness, and even though these films maybe aren't quite as overtly political, they they certainly incorporate those themes, and I think it's just you know pretty interesting to watch them yeah. sort of all happening right around that same time. Exactly. Yeah. So, what are some other elements, uh, Trevor? Any particular moments or scenes or exchanges that stand out to you about Cruel Gun Story? Yeah, the ending. Oh, okay. Yeah, we can get right to it there. I mean, do you want to go so, right to it? I mean, that's well, the sure. thing. Well, sure. I mean, you know, if we if we kind of follow the plot, you know, just to, you know, kind of refresh viewers maybe who haven't seen it in a while. Basically, you've got the heist, which is a robbery of an armored car. Uh, you've got the bungled execution where they do get the money, but they can't get just the money. They have to take the whole car, including the drivers, and then they have to go into hiding uh, as they know they're going to be pursued, there's a big bloody shootout, there's betrayals within the gang, and then there's that ending. So, yeah, basically the money, you know, kind of swaps back and forth a little bit, and the, the drama becomes who's going who's gonna to walk away with the loot, who's going to, you know, come out on top after all the dirty double crossing <laughs> runs its course. And, uh, yeah, why don't you go ahead and take us to it, Trevor? Uh, well, I, I just I was very sh- shocked. Even though the film is uh, cynical and um, and has that that nihilistic quality to it, as as we've talked about, I still wasn't expecting quite this kind of ending. Um, you know, we have Joe Shishido's character kind of out and about. Um, he's taking care of business. He's he's um, you know it looks like maybe he's he's won. Um, but when he gets back to kind of the the holdout, he finds that his the his co-conspirators have kind of um, uh, gotten into a fight, and two of them who never were really on their side um, have have attempted to to murder his friend, who's also you know involved in the heist. Um, well, when when Joe Shishido gets back, he he has to deal with that aftermath. But the particular part I'm I'm thinking of is, you know, he goes upstairs. And finds his friend, and his friend, hallucinating, thinks that Joe Shishido is someone else, and shoots him. 
and then realizes, you know, as Joe Shishido is over there kind of uh, down on the ground, like, oh, no, what have I done? <clears throat> and Shishido's character comes over and is like, oh, no, no, it's it's okay, you you missed. And so his friend can now die in some kind of peace, I guess. Um, yeah, but yeah, then Joe last, himself dies. <laughs> you yeah, know, one, it's one last noble act of yes. uh, trying to take care of his cohort. And I think that the friend, I, I will mean, take it all upon me. Yeah. Yeah. Togawa, the Shishido character has one friend who's kind of more of his peer, but I think the guy who shoots him, isn't he, was it Taki? He's kind of a young kid who kind of gets drawn up in all of this. Am, am I correct on that, uh, Pablo? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, right. Played that, by uh, friend of the show, Tamio Kawachi, of course. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love that. He was the, the he was the character in Black Sun, the the jazz fanatic, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. Tell, tell, exactly. Tell us a little bit more about Tomio Kawachi because he he's definitely become a favorite of mine amongst this uh, this roster of Nikatsu uh, bit players. Well, Tomio Kawachi is one of the mo- most prolific of Nikatsu actors who was famous for playing rebellious, sometimes psychopathical. Uh, but always extremely energetic young guys in many Tarazoko films uh, as the uh, part- as the particular brand of rebellious youth films that were made a few years earlier were called and well he's he's crazy. And these are the warped ones as well. Right? Ah, yeah, uh, of which, course. Yeah, warped ones and Black Sun. I mean, two really histrionic performances. I mean, he's completely <laughs> off the chain on, in both of those roles, you know. And and here he's a little bit more subdued. It's more of a, a supporting role, but still a very uh, memorable character, especially once you sort of connected with him uh, in a few of his other appearances. Uh, yeah, he, he just, uh, you know, I, I just break out in smiles when I see him. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but but you're right. So and so you you have uh you have this really I guess kind of flamboyant final scene where uh, you know Togawa Shishido he's he's shot. He's um and then he kicks over a kerosene lamp which or no, yeah there's like a bunch of you know fuel that spills down the stairs that catches on fire from the lamp he falls the money scatters everywhere it's just like this incredibly you know apocalyptic scene <laughs> you know you're dying from a bullet wound inflicted by one of your your mates uh, you've got the money but it's all going up in flames and you're spread out on the floor breathing your last with a little crucifix in your leather-gloved hand. (laughs) What an exit. (laughs) Well, and if we do tie it back to the killers, um, so I guess spoiler for the killers, everyone knows how these things end. Um, You know, it's the same sense of waste at the end of that one, but without all the death and just uh, annihilation. Um, This one takes it, ramps it up, not just one notch, but, you know, three or four notches. Uh, to, to get that kind of dramatic effect. It's not just yeah. money that's been wasted and some time and, oh, well, probably going to jail now. You know, it's it's everything. Yeah. Right, right, because that crucifix was given to him by his sister, you know, and so it's kind of a, and beyond the religious symbolism, it's just also that sense of, you know, the people I love, people I gave it all for, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're going through the, going to go through this loss as well. Yeah, and well, I I believe uh, this sums up the film quite well. Uh, you can say it's similar to a American or French 
crime film, but everything is just a bit more extreme. Uh, the, the body count is higher, the ending is bleaker, the actors are even more stoic and, well, sometimes even more uh, buffoonerish in <laughs> some cases. So it's really, that's what uh, event in the end sold the film uh, for me. Uh, that's, well, it, it's just so, well, exhilarating to watch uh, this, yeah, this, well, what's the, <laughs> it's just exhilarating to watch, right? Uh, this extremity on screen so uh yeah yeah they they definitely take everything to the next level you know and it's it's not especially explicit and i would say you know maybe compared to take aim at the police van it's not quite as bonkers in terms of its almost cartoonish violence i mean there's no you know (laughs) you know arrows to the breast or (laughs) or or, or, uh, there's no uh you know james bond sequence like we talked about with the truck and the flaming uh trail of of petrol behind it but uh it 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 is it is extreme in its own it's in its own way and it's it's and i'm sure uh, from the standards of 1964 this must have felt like it was just breaking taboos just in terms of the you know the the harshness the unrelenting uh you know, heaviness and tragedy of it all, yeah. Yeah, and once again, I believe this is another case in point for my theory, I believe, that uh, they wanted to emulate this Sankoku Chidegeki because these films back then broke uh, or were revolutionary in Japan for just how violent they were. I'm not sure, have you seen, uh, you probably have seen Yojimbo, for example, Oh, sure, which yeah. is often named the first one, the first song, mm-hmm. Kokuchi Dageki, uh, where an arm gets cut off to name, but one right. violet scene. And then, of course, Harakiri. Have you ever seen? Um, oh, of course. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. It's so gripping and so, I mean, it's haunting, really. I mean, the, 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 you know, the imagery of the Sapuku ritual. Oh, yeah. And the intensity, especially when they make him go through with it with a bamboo <laughs> rather than oh, a sword boy, you yeah. know and 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 even sanjuro the the follow-up to uh yojimbo where there's that notorious spurt of blood at the final uh you know showdown there which even i think surpassed kurosawa's intentions in terms of just the sheer volume of fluids <laughs> spelled on screen there uh so yeah definitely they were they were exploring some new territory and and uh of course, the ongoing uh, Zadoichi series that I blog about every once in a while, you can sort of see the progression of of uh, more graphic violence uh, as that series progresses. So, you know, there's definitely a curiosity, a morbid fascination, if you will. But uh, this this still remains to to me, Cruel Gun Story, one of the most bracing, you know, kind of hardcore stares into the void of, of many of the films that i've seen from not just japan but really from from, from many other you know, countries and filmmakers over the years uh so other comments on uh, on uh, cruel gun story before we proceed well perhaps uh, a few words about takumi furukawa uh, oh, yeah, yeah, the director. I definitely the director, sorry, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> a few words. Uh, I have to stress that because I actually haven't seen uh, 
much of his work. Actually, I've seen just one more film, which was Season of the Sun, which is... Uh, oh, that's right. He yeah. was the one who sort of started this whole thing off, huh? Yeah. He started it with the whole U-Film circle, and in the end was started well nikatsu started the success uh, the streak of success of of nikatsu uh, well i actually cannot say much about his if he had a he had a particular style uh, or philosophy uh, in his body of work but uh, i can say that much this that season of the sun in contrast to Gurgan's story is actually well, the most conservative and tame of all the uh, youth films and action films of Nikatsu. It starts uh, starts uh, Yuchiro Ishihara's brother, uh, Shintaro Ishihara. Uh, and, well, it's just not very good. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, well, it's great to see that Cruel Gun's story uh, is a... In my opinion, a very good film. A film with a clear tone, with a consequent darkness and grit to it, and with well, fast pacing. So it's an all-around, all-around good uh, genre film. To sum up my uh, opinion of the film. Yeah, I think it's really both of these films to me feel very well made. You know, I know Pablo. Last time you talked about the uh the high level of cinematography and other uh kind of artistic elements uh produced by you know crew members who may not necessarily be household names in fact most of them certainly are not you sort of have to be a genre specialist to learn kind of the who's who uh, the director or follow many- or follow pablo well, well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Get involved um, with these. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, some of the directors, of course, become celebrated because of the auteurism uh, bias of, of Western viewers. But but you're right, there's a lot of just workaday guys who are doing incredible things. And, uh, you know, if you're just looking for nice screen caps or, or kind of iconic imagery, you can hit the pause button on both of these DVDs pretty frequently and have some really striking compositions and and memorable moments even if even if the story kind of flies past you or you're not all that into it just the the power of the imagery of the characters where they position themselves the light the shadow you know all all those elements uh these are visually uh beautiful films and 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 just very impactful in, in my view well, let's go ahead and move on to A Cult is My Passport. Uh, this is this is the film that has often been cited in, in some of the reviews I've read as as the kind of the crown jewel of the set. Perhaps it's Joe Shishido's full flowering, of course, right around the same time as he did uh, Branded to Kill for Suzuki. A uh, pretty notorious career ender for uh, the director, like as Pablo said, had just passed away. Kind of uh, his passing happened between these two episodes, but we did talk about a Suzuki film last time, and uh, you know his his career arc is quite remarkable in that he kind of took his craft uh, to unattainable heights and was just too much for the studios to handle. Uh, but right around the same time as uh, Shishido's being cast in in Suzuki's Branded to Kill. Uh, he's doing uh, a cult is my passport, and I I kind of just wonder what Shishido must have been thinking as he went through this, because I I would imagine as he was doing branded to kill. I mean I don't know. Do you have any insights as being 
between uh, yeah on on uh, Shishido's view of his own work at the time. I mean, was he just taking these assignments uh, and just doing what the script told him, or was he an active contributor and collaborator in terms of developing his characters and and uh, you know creating some kind of a nuanced persona what do you know about his approach to his character we certainly uh, wanted to create a unique character he was always very interested and conscious of his uh, image and well he created this basically this his character was called and marketed as by the studio as Hitman Joe during that time and uh, well he, uh, as I said earlier, he, uh, he tried to imbue his characters with a sense of irony uh, in many films. Well, here in these two films, he is uh, more straight-faced, perhaps. But uh, in other works, he's, he often was very fond of making fun of his, of his status as a macho action hero. Uh, for example... Uh, the sexual arousal in Brandy to Kill, the hitman uh, feels when he smells the rice, uh, is according to, was according to Shoshido, uh, created by himself because he thought it was hilarious. And yeah. apparently, he, <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's that's one of the more notorious little uh, you know, taglines <laughs> of that film, or as, as far as references. So yeah, it, it, the idea definitely worked. It, it caught on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and it's. Perhaps interesting to note that uh, Branded to Kill back then was only one of three uh, films which all shot in black and white and all starring Joe Shishido uh, as a hitman. Uh, the other, of course, being the film we are about to discuss and the third one is uh, is uh, what's Slaughter Gun, Gun Genau by Yasuhara Sebe, which was also recently released by Arrow Films. It's, well, to quickly say, it's perhaps the most, not the best of the three film uh, Slaughter Gun, but it's a well film. It's okay. But all of these films are, well, very, very similar in that they are shot in very, in a very, well, in a very dark black and white and and all have this sort of irreverent tone to them. They are, well, not mm-hmm. Japanese at all. Or what do you think <laughs> about yeah, that? I don't think, I mean, yeah, again, you you know, the setting is in Japanese society, the, the Yakuza, the crime bosses, uh, certainly in, in Occult is My Passport. But you know, you had talked a little bit about the borderless action style, where the you know, in our previous episode, where you know the men are all wearing Western suits, they're having Western cocktails, uh, and and you know, other than you know the obvious Japanese cast, and uh, you know maybe a few details here and there, this story could have definitely been played out in Europe or North America. Or really, almost anywhere, and so or Italy, uh, or Italy, definitely, yeah, <laughs> Italy, exactly. The spaghetti western, uh, the theme music, especially, is you're getting more into that. And I think it is noteworthy that uh, this is 1967. Japan wasn't doing a lot in black and white by 1967. You know, the, they had really embraced 
the the color and, and the vibrancy. So this black and white, these are deliberate choices uh, that are being made here. Uh, as unlike the other films where black and white was pretty much still, you know, the dominant uh, you know format for for especially for movie making on this scale, which is kind of a B movie, you know, cheap uh, theaters, uh, not a not a real glamorous presentation, but, but again, a, a lot of dedication to the craft uh, that that you, that you can see up on the screen. Well, and I would say that that's what this film has going for it is the craft, um, those deliberate choices, particularly to kind of call back to the Western with all the music and, you know, even with the framing of like standoffs, you know, here we are in, in 1960s Japan, but it still looks like you're out on some barren plain or, or in some Western street um, <coughs> getting in, getting into a gunfight uh, uh, some of the time. And, and that's what made the film fun for me. Otherwise, I think the story kind of ho-hum, you know, but it's, it's Joe Shishido being, being stoic. It's, it's all of these double crosses. It's, it's the kind of, um, uh, maniacal crime boss who, who, who's a little bit, you know, just a little bit off. Um, it's those kinds of things that I really, really liked about this one more than any particular story. And so I wonder if it weren't for that harmonica music and making me think of, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, for example, oh, yeah. would I like this movie at all? And I don't know, but I did like it because of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's all those elements, all those tropes. Go ahead, Paul. Well, it's certainly a extremely beautifully short film, uh, and it has perhaps two things really going for it. Well, besides the Italo-Western music, uh, first, a brilliant opening, and secondly, a brilliant uh, last showdown. I thought these were really the two standout uh, segments of the film. In the middle of the film, well, perhaps not dragged, but, well, it didn't go really anywhere, in my opinion, for about 20 minutes or so. It wasn't really that eventful after, well, the great opening and, yeah, of course, the, well, well, you could say, yeah, yeah iconic last minutes. Oh, the, the the final showdown is is immortal. It's 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 yeah, just yeah. legendary, right? But uh, you know, I think there's there's entertainment. I mean, I've watched it a few different times over the past uh, several weeks, and and it, as you sort of settle into it, there's there's some fun in the antici- in seeing how uh, brilliantly the Shishido character anticipates all of the, you know maneuvers that are going to be unveiled against him I and mean, he has has a car made with a, a a break in the rear like why would you want to do that well he's got a he's got a sense that that some that 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 break in the back seat might come in handy and of course it, it comes perfectly into play and they're kind of uh you know taken taken captive by uh by the boss's men after the after the hit job uh, goes down a little bit differently than uh, they were anticipating. And of course, so, so, you know, again, the, the plot summary really quick is just, you know, Joe Shishido's a, a, an assassin, uh, just a complete deadly marksman, uh, you know, rifle specialist. And he's, he's hired to take out uh, the boss of a rival gang. And he's got a very limited window of time to do that, but he does it in a way that kind of creates trouble for the people who've actually hired him because when he takes out the boss and you know, and then he does so by you know 
posing as a as an apartment hunter you know he's he's looking for a place to live which just happens to be at the perfect angle for uh this sniping down into the into the boss's uh lair and uh he does it while he's in the presence of his his gangland uh, criminal rivals there and so of course you got a dead body police investigation you know all of that and now <laughs> things have gotten very very complicated so you got them got saying a, how how will we know you've done the job? And he just says, uh, yeah. "Oh, you'll know." <laughs> yeah, you'll know. <laughs> and 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 of course, right before he can go on the lamb, uh, right before he can make his big escape, uh, you know, he's rounded up, and and that's where this whole you know car situation comes in. Oh, and there's a, some some great throwaway lines, you know, never fall in love with your gun, you know, in this business and all that kind of stuff. So it it is it's it's kind of a a celebration, I guess I would take it of kind of the the you know the lone wolf assassin um and just some of the maneuvers they have to go through to dispose of the evidence, you know, putting the gun in the crusher, you know, uh, driving the car into the harbor, and just the way they do that, you know, they're just going to put the thing, you know, rolling across the dock there, and then just jump out the door at the last minute. So just the way that these these things are filmed, uh, it, to me, is very appealing, very engaging. But you're right, plot wise and originality, uh, in a way, unlike the ending of cruel gun story where it it's kind of bracing and and you know shocking and surprising this one here you you almost saw it coming except for the ingenuity of how <laughs> of how shishido gets around that uh, uh bulletproof glass uh, at the end there again the 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 way that his escapes are constructed uh are, are they are pretty ludicrous i mean nobody's really going to have the foresight to plan ahead that brilliantly but except in the movies right <laughs> yeah. the movies, they could get away with that kind of thing just like in cartoons anything can happen you know characters can walk on clouds but uh <laughs> you just sort of laugh at the absurdity of it and and there's a certain cleverness i guess if you will to the whole thing because of the way they put it together so yeah you, you talked about self-parody earlier i think we've definitely reached the point in the genre where it's starting to wink at its its at its own conventions at the moment where i had to dispense disbelief the most was when the bad guys uh, bad guys shoot at him while driving the car towards uh, shishido at the end i wondered why don't they finish him off uh, from a distance i mean he has a he has a a shotgun. That's, that's so, no fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten a very cool scene. But he has a shotgun, <laughs> a short-range weapon. So, <laughs> just a little uh, nitpick. Yeah. But I thought that was funny. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. That's set up just for, for the energy. I, In fact, reading David's review when you did the journey to the eclipse, you, you mentioned all this in that, just like it's, it's, and it's a little bit clunky, the choreography, you know, it's not quite as smooth and, and, um, you, you know, edited to perfection, like you see action films today doing just weird, bizarre things. Um, and yet, strangely, that lends it perhaps a little bit more reliability or you know realism <laughs> i don't know it, it just feels gritty it feels like yeah you know dudes really it. out there rolling around on this big dirt wasteland and 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 just you know there there is no cgi there are no special effects other than maybe a few you know blood makeup and you know things of that sort some some fancy editing but 
there yeah it's it's the it's the combination of the grittiness but also kind of the uh the handmade aspect of of these of the relative low tech approach uh and the fatalism that sort of courses through the whole thing that <laughs> that wins my affection yeah i love the white planes in the end the giant uh, wasteland it, this is perhaps another note to the stylistics of the Italo-Western, and I think it lends uh, the showdown a particular, well, iconic quality. Just, uh, yeah, well, it's just like an Ennio Morricone film, uh, well, only... Yeah, well, or the perhaps, samurai films where you've got yeah. those clouds of dust blowing around. Exactly. You know, those, yeah. Exactly, and by uh, just a little, just a little uh, detail, uh, the the gang boss in the beginning, who gets shot, you know, the guy who appears yeah. shortly, he is actually played by Kanjuro Arashi, one of the all-time greatest legends of Japanese cinema, who does a little cameo, who uh, to get back on the acrobatics in this film was a brilliant Chidageki uh, uh, or period film star who was among the greatest sword fighters uh, in all of cinema history in my opinion uh, during the was silent film age. Was he in any image. Kurosawa films or I mean any that I might be familiar with? Or much, earlier, might be familiar? much earlier. Much oh, earlier. Okay so he was like from uh, like the 30s, 20s, 20s. 30s. Yeah 20s. Okay okay wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, other than a few of those early Ozus, I mean, that's still completely unexplored territory for me. So, uh, boy, now you've got me curious to see if oh, I can yeah. track some of that stuff down. I'll send you some, <laughs> if you uh, like. <laughs> way to go, Pablo. Thank you. I, I would definitely take you up on that. That sounds cool. <clears throat> and, um, me too. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> that's, that's right. And another quick detail, he was the first pale person ever to play an emperor. In, in film, uh, in the film uh, The Emperor Meiji and The Great was a Japanese film, which actually was... Was there a kind of a, a rule against doing that or, or a reluctance perhaps on the Japanese filmmaker's well, part to yes. humanize the emperor in some way? Well, not to humanize them, uh, his, his, him, sorry, <laughs> but uh, general to depict him on screen. Right, As you right. know, yeah, he, the emperor, there's no... Uh, figure in Japan as well as revered as the emperor. So it was simply a controversial thing to depict an emperor, even if, even if in this case he uh, was an emperor who had long died before this film uh, was made. And by the way, the first emperor uh, to de be depicted, the first living emperor to depict it was in, I believe, in. The 80s, 80s, I have forgotten the film. So just to show you how much and controversial issue this was to, to, depict, and to depict the holy figure of the emperor. <laughs> so just yeah, a little yeah. side note. Yeah. No, always, always fascinating to have those details. Uh, what about some of the cultural elements here? I mean, we don't really have the... Uh you know the the political overlay uh the american occupation as much here but you do have you know these little scenes with the truckers and their little hotel and kind of you know a little bit of a class thing going on i mean yeah 
I don't often see a lot of these types of characters, these kind of working class figures, uh, you know, dressed in their kind of, you know, jackets and caps and they're kind of they're kind of a different style of of stock Japanese character, these little this little roadhouse along the way that uh that the Shishido character and and his uh ally you know hang out in temporarily and again they make another one of these elaborate escapes like they just perfectly know <laughs> when the bad guys are after him and they just have the, the 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 impeccable timing of how to slip out the side door uh, catch a ride away but uh, you know what what are you know the, there's there's some other elements to that so i don't know anything that stood out to either of you just about uh, some of these side characters who kind of that kind of that cranky old woman who works at the hotel. Just, there's some amusement, I guess, I found in some of that stuff. Honestly, for me, they've kind of started to drift away. Not a problem. Um, okay. Sadly, <laughs> I, I probably need to watch it again. But, you know, the yeah. things that, that stand out really are those stylistic flares and that final showdown. I think, I think yeah. fittingly, but now I'm kind of, kind of sad. I'm sitting here going, oh, the, the old woman? What, <laughs> well, what you know, there? They're, they're, they're just little local color I, I, it kind of probably ties into what pablo was saying where there are some parts that uh, sequences are sort of a uh kind of a filling in the gaps uh mode where they just have to sort of advance the plot along there you know again i've got it playing on my screen right now so some some parts are just kind of right there in front of me um, and you see, you know, characters, it, it, some light comedy, people kind of, you know, flirting with the waitress and, uh, you, you know, I, I guess there's some attempts to try to create a little bit of, uh, you know, character interest, a little bit of dramatic tension, but it is, it all comes down to, uh, what's, what's the assassin going to do? How is he going to escape the latest trap that, uh, the, you know, that the bad guys are springing on him and, and just that whole kind of paradox of, of getting the audience to pull, you know, sympathetically for a uh, a guy who's pretty much a, a, a remorseless assassin. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's just a completely a, a professional killer. He'll take out whoever needs to be taken out for whatever price. You know, they do imbue the Shishido character with a little bit of honor. I mean, there's that scene at the end where he kind of, you know, sets his his partner free, puts him on the ship, and gets him gets him a. Uh, uh, you know out of out of the line of fire and the guy wants to stay loyal to his boss but you know shishido has to stand you know take this one on his own and you sort of see him standing there in that wide-legged stance on the on the hull of the boat as he's kind of going to you know face his fate and uh you know settle the score it's kind of it is it is very much a you know the lone gunman showdown uh at the okay corral type of type of setup there yeah exactly and it well it's a film about set pieces in my view it's well it's perhaps more interesting for yeah individual moments than as a whole uh, i actually have watched it yesterday yet again because i had completely completely forgotten almost everything about the middle part it somehow just doesn't stick sticks uh, with me. I mean, I remember the old woman. I remember uh, the bar and the uh, well horny uh, customers. But right. <laughs> <laughs> but well, but, but it's it's a very ephemeral. It it kind of just dissolves the minute you move on to the next scene. There, you're right. Exactly. But of course, those scenes when when there are good scenes, then they are really good and memorable. Memorable. 
Uh, I, I think my uh, favorite shot is the one where in the in the end when Toshido runs across across the screen, follow, uh, followed by a tracking shot, and then does this little yeah. flip and shoots the guy. That's a uh, oh very, yeah, that, yeah. That, those are that, that well. Let's just talk about that final sequence because it, it is it's it's really you know. I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to rank all-time top 50 scenes or something, but it's it's definitely a sequence that captures so much. And the fact that you know it's Shishido out there tumbling around and flipping guns, and it, it's it's so visceral, so brawny. I I, I just really love it. And and uh, yeah, it, it's one of those sequences where you, you can just go right to that chapter on the DVD and and cue it up again for a few minutes of. Uh, you know, brisk and bracing entertainment. Yeah. Uh, and Trevor touched upon this before. It's it's more yeah, more gritty, more real, in my opinion. In at least in its yeah, in its Loki uh, technical uh, technical make <laughs> making, and that uh, I believe it's is very unusual, especially in uh, the sixties where. You know, you had all this uh, overdone uh, fight scenes with people punching and other people, you know, uh, flying uh, across the room and all these uh, melodramatic dying sequences when someone uh, uh, grabs his, uh, or uh, what's the word, uh, touches his heart and likes, when somebody is shot and all this stuff and... In this film, it somehow feels more real, and well, that's what I took took from it. In the end, yeah, Pablo, as you're talking about these kind of more gritty, almost realistic notes, I, I again, I, I'm not trying to rush these along, guys, but I want to talk about the ending again um, because you you know that the assassin is hurt. Um, he's been through a, a few rough moments. Um, he's been he's been shot, and you you know that he's kind of on his last leg to an extent, um, even though he's going to face his fate and get rid of you know the the all the bad guys, um, and they're driving up on him and they're shooting him too, uh, you know you you just get this sense that he could die at any moment and he and he doesn't he gets he gets his way. But it doesn't end the same way like a Western does, um, or you know, especially, and certainly doesn't end the same way a James Bond movie does. If we're throwing in that uh, comparison again, like we've talked about before, <laughs> where you know, with James Bond, you know that he's he's fine. You know, he's gonna go. He, he's he's just he's perfectly he's unscathed. Um, no matter what he's been through, with a in a western, you know the cowboy he might he might be be hurt, but he's going to ride off into the sunset. You may never see him again, but you know he's going to to be okay. You know, he's he's transcended something or other. Um, in this one, I almost get the sense that when the screen it goes black, he might fall over and die right there. You know, he he looks. He looks hurt, and it wouldn't it wouldn't have surprised me given the ending of of um, Cruel Gun's story. But I I just got that sense like they almost leave him there um, it, rather than kind of watch him leave us, uh, which was a very different kind of ending to to my perspective anyway. Um, which made me kind of uh, think, whoa, you know, he he he's kind of done for. Uh, he might not yeah. die this minute, but 
but he might die in you know in two minutes and and he even if he lives i don't think he's got much longer it's a very different feel as the credits start to roll than i'm used to in similar movies right you you usually there's a closure i mean if he's if he's mortally wounded we're gonna see him die and that's gonna sort of you know conclude the whole film or the, that whole character saga and he, in this way he's, he's sort of sentenced to sort of a purgatory <laughs> of of just kind of you know his last moment is yeah. one of just kind of physical and psychic torment you know everything that he cares about has been stripped away but he doesn't even have the peace of death to relieve him of of that pressure. It's just, it's a pretty well, bleak ending in its own you've way. You've made yeah. it even bleaker than I had. It. <laughs> <laughs> Here he is in this yeah. wasteland. It turns out it's yeah. just purgatory. He's he's yeah. or, or limbo or something. You know he's he's dead, he's but not not yeah. given reprieve. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I believe that point was also made in Branded to Kill, uh, where. Well, you could say that Brandon to Kill is about a guy who, well, escapes into the stranger uh, parts of his brain and basically in the end has, be- has gone insane. Uh, have you seen uh, Brandon to Kill in the meantime, Trevor? No, you just oh. spoiled it for me, Pablo. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's the giveaway right there. Oh, no. uh, now I know exactly what's going to happen in that movie. Boiled and escaping into his brain. <laughs> that was, you, you've clarified it all. There will be no mystery as I approach it. No, I, I haven't seen them yet, and I, I certainly don't don't feel like you spoiled it at all for me. I was <laughs> just teasing you there. Okay. Um, I, I am excited too, and especially with um, you know Suzuki dying um, recently – I've I've got to get my hands on on those films. I know I can watch them on Filmstruck, but but I'd kind of rather get them on Blu-ray and and watch them that way. And I I don't have them yet. Oh, I'm jealous of you guys, because in Germany, uh, of course, Filmstruck isn't working. It's really right. a pain. <laughs> but yeah, and they probably don't make it easy to get around either. You know. I, I, uh, I know that that it's a great service and definitely one that uh, I appreciate. We talk about a fair amount from our different podcasts from time to time, but I do feel for the uh, you know folks overseas who uh, <laughs> see all this rich streaming content but uh, can't quite get the get it up on their screen there. Uh, yeah, so we've talked about that that thrilling conclusion, uh, those uh, kind of iconic moments. Is there anything more to be said about uh, a cult as my passport? I mean, where, where did where did Shishido's career go after this, Pablo? Maybe we can kind of wrap up our conversation focusing on the man at the heart of all this. Well, it didn't go really anywhere because as far as I know, uh, all, all three films weren't particularly successful at the box office. And at the time, Nikatsu was yeah, basically done for. They were almost bank- bankrupt. Well, yeah. and the fad had kind of run its course. The, the diamond line, the action guys, people sort of had had their fill of that, or were just the audience was moving on into other directions, perhaps. Exactly, and of course, television had uh, found its way into Japan, and people simply didn't go to cinema anymore. So uh, Nikatsu, of course, switched to to uh, soft porn in 1971. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, George Shido wouldn't have it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a little old for that kind of thing, right? Yeah, of course. And which actor really wants to work on low-budget, uh, uh, basically porn films when you right. had it all, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he worked as a character actor and was moder- moderately successful. Uh, one of his more notable roles is perhaps in the. Oh, God. In the fourth part? Uh, I'm not sure. Don't take my word for it. But of, in a, a Battle of Honor and Humanity film, that was where he plays a psychopathic bad guy. You know, Battles Without Honor or Humanity? You know, I know papers. about it. I, I, I did not get in on that deal when it was, uh, you know, the Blue Airs released was last year or two. And I think it's kind of sold out out of print now and kind of fetching a, a price. Maybe I'm mistaken on that, but I have not taken to those films yet. Uh, those were more like, what, late 60s, early 70s era uh, yeah. action films? Mid-70s, right? mid-70s. Mid-70s, okay. Uh, okay. Mid, yeah, 70s, 70s, yeah. <laughs> right, sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, but, you know, he certainly had a pretty glorious run of it there. And uh, these films kind of catch Shishido at his prime. Um, but yeah, do you think we've pretty much uh, wrapped up our our conversation about uh, "Cold Is My Passport"? There, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm done. done. Okay, that's <laughs> good. Finished. Uh, Finished. All right. Well, you know, uh, what about the set as a whole, uh, Trevor? Let's kind of hear from you. I mean, we've we've kind of. I think we can vouch for the fact that Pablo probably finds this a pretty valuable <laughs> set. And, uh, I do. Certainly give him a chance to summarize it. But let's hear Tever's take on the set overall. Now, I, I don't know when's the last time you've done your tracking of popularity, uh, at least as the my Ooh, criteria sites, stats and all that. But I know this is probably one of the, what, top two or three sellers, uh, at least the last time you ran one of those reports. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's up there. I, I'm not sure if it's it, it's – it's in. It's kind of on the cusp of top five, I think. Okay, um, yeah, maybe you've got the Kurosawa, Kurosawa and, and have uh, gone past that. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'll have to look though. But it's definitely one of the top ones, um, and it's been a while since I've since I've looked into that. But yeah. I, I will do that again and let you but know. But just in terms of you know, I, I guess you could say it's maybe more of a, a populist, uh, somewhat hyped up Eclipse series set. I, I remember when it was actually announced as a new release years ago. And there was definitely a lot of excitement. I mean, I think there is something about these Japanese noirs and, you know, the diamond guys and, and just that kind of hard boiled two fisted action from the Japanese perspective. Uh, there's kind of a Tarantino connection and that, you know, he draws a lot of, uh, inspiration, uh, or directly lifts a lot of material from these films, however you want to put it. Um, and so, yeah, they, they, there is, these are pretty accessible films in, in some ways. I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about, are these, you know, camp films? I mean, some people might view them as such because the extremity of the action or the, you know, supposed cartoonishness of, of some of it. And we've, we've certainly, you know, made remarks along those lines of enjoyed it, but I, I still like to steer away from those types of uh, surface level uh, interpretations of films that kind of make them more of a farce. I mean, unless you're talking about something like house, you know, which is (laughs) clearly meant to be, you know, zany, loony, you know, bonkers and all of that. Great film. 
Yeah, it is a great film. It's 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 incredible uh, what it is. But but these types of movies, I I I resist the kind of more condescending view. Like oh look at these crazy Japanese gangsters, you know. Like you know these are these are people telling stories and and the pain and the suffering and the and the loss and and uh, the you know the the sacrifice even even the honor amongst thieves or amongst uh you know criminals uh, you know i think you get some of that in the yujiro films where uh you know he doesn't doesn't really want to go down that criminal path but circumstances of his life and the society around him kind of forced him down that road and you get a little bit of that here too so you know not making excuses necessarily but saying you know <laughs> life has been very tough and i've had to make some hard choices and even some compromises but despite that those flaws in my history, despite my own disappointment and some of the things that I've done, you know, I want to try to still make something good happen here. And, and I think there's a, there's a humanity that we can relate to in these films, uh, despite some of the, you know, kind of, you know, excesses that, that, uh, make them somewhat a little bit less than completely realistic. Yeah, I completely subscribe to what you just said. Uh, I would like to, bring another aspect into it i think uh, whether these films are great or not but uh, of course of course i think they're great but uh, they they broaden our sense of what japanese cinema is i mean since well the author theory with uh, godard and truffaut uh, singled out certain filmmakers over others and especially over uh, genre cinema uh, genre cinema has in general well gotten a bad rap so and i think especially in terms of japanese cinema it's important for us to see for the audience to see that japanese cinema is not only ozu it's not only kurosawa it's it's so much there was never a, a japanese cinema Japanese cinema is compromised. Uh, is compromised. Is that a word? Compromised. Comprised. Comprised. I'm very, very yeah. sorry. Yeah. It's, compri- yeah. <laughs> it's comprised of of uh, karate films, of uh, of period films of all kinds, and in a, a mind blowingly wide wide vari- variety, and. Well, sometimes also of, well, westernized gangster films, which also could be made in other countries, if not for the Japanese-speaking people in them. Yeah, so whether you've heard of the director or even heard of the actors, you know, uh, there's still great artistry um, and creativity to be found here. So I I, I do appreciate that, and, and... you know, we've we've said in the previous episode this is not a set that focuses on the work of any particular directors. It's somewhat actor driven, but it's really these are just genre films and showing the variety of of uh, attitudes and approaches uh, that that uh, flourished uh, during this uh, this very brief window of time. Uh, but it it really did open up Japanese cinema in in many new directions, uh, traditions of which still endure to this day. That really aren't based on the you know the the historic samurai epics or the domestic dramas of the ozus and mizuguchis naruses and and other old great masters so yeah i i've enjoyed this this uh this convert these conversations and this uh chance to revisit a very uh engaging and, and very entertaining set
Yeah, I agree. It's been it's been a, a lot of fun. And Pablo, again, you've enriched my uh, appreciation for these films. Just uh, you know, I, I can't even can't even quantify how much it, it's been great to to have your insights on them because there is so much going on in them. It would it would be easy for me to have just watched them and kind of dismissed them if I were just kind of going through Criterion's Eclipse sets and thought, oh, those those were fun. You know, I I liked those, um, but that's no Ozu, you know, and just to kind of move on away from them. Um, but I've really enjoyed uh, kind of watching them with a little bit more attention than that and then getting your insights into the into the background, into some of the trivia, <clears throat> into some of the techniques, and uh, what the studio was trying to do with these. It's been it's been great. I I want to thank you. Well, it's, it's definitely been very enjoyable having you on as a guest. You've definitely enriched uh, these two episodes, and of course, going back to the Kurahara set. Uh, from last year as well. So thanks again, Pablo. It's been great having you on board. Uh, definitely worth the uh, arrangements <laughs> that we've all had to make in order to, to get this uh, to get this time uh, on the books and in the recording. So we're going to go ahead and talk about our next uh, Eclipse Viewer uh, journey as we move on to visit uh, the uh, to date at least the most recent ep- uh, recent release of the Eclipse series, which is. Uh, box number 44, Julian de Vivier in the 30s. And so we are going to uh, probably uh, try to schedule this in some kind of conjunction with the uh, French director series that Aaron West and Mark Herney have been doing over on the Criterion Close-Up podcast, uh, one of our neighbors here on the Hyperbolic TV network. And so uh, we will probably be starting that sometime in March Uh as we're uh, now into the month of March here. But we've got some scheduling arrangements to make. Got to figure out when the right time is to get Aaron on board. But uh, Aaron will be joining us uh, for uh, uh, his next go-around on the Eclipse Viewer. And he was with us with the Ocean Masset when we reviewed that uh, a while back there. But uh, we're going to talk some French cinema and uh, go with, the, with, like I say, with the most current uh, Eclipse series set, uh, leaving after we're done with that, we'll just have the uh, post-war Kurosawa and late Ozu. Unless, of course, there's another Eclipse series uh, in the in the uh, wings there. But we'll have to wait and see what the good folks at Criterion have to tell us when they announce their June releases or perhaps something <laughs> further than that down the road. So uh, any final comments from uh, either of you? I guess we've kind of come down to wrap-up time. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm good. All right. Well, thank you. For, all right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, keep your eyes open. Uh, stay out of the the way of the the scheming bosses and the backstabbers out there, and keep yourself alive. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>